Hello, Mage fans. This is Mage the Podcast, the podcast that works hard towards ascension so you don't have to. I'm your host, Adam Simpson. I am joined today by Terry Robinson. How are you doing today, Terry? I am ready to talk about tubes in space and people with comically large guns pointing at it things that are different than them. Well, that's a good thing, because today in Tomes of Magic, we are talking about technocracy void engineers, and you are going to get more than you asked for. This book is the convention book for the void engineers. It is the fourth in this series. came out in 1996, has a number 15 on the spine, and it was uh, written by Judith A. McLaughlin, Edward R. Winters, who was helped out by Satiros Bricado. And uh, this book was actually a lot of fun. It weighs in at about 69 pages. And before we get into some uh, underlying information about uh, the Void Engineers as a group, I just wanted to uh, kick off with a shout out to a fellow mage fan across the pond. This is in the UK. I don't have permission to mention his name, but uh, he very generously responded to uh, my request a few episodes back where I said that my life is just not complete. There is a gaping <laughs> hole, which is just about the thickness of the mage first edition storyteller screen with adventure insert. And he let me know that he's here to help. He was willing to sell it to me for a very reasonable price. It is on its way. It should come in my mailbox in a couple of days. I'm very excited. I want to say a big thank you. If I had your permission, I would say your name, but you know who you are. And I certainly appreciate what you did for me. So anything else to uh, bring us up to speed on uh, the world of mage fans, Terry? I have a few notes. One, you and I are still recovering from our marathon discussion of Book of the Fallen, the latest text to hit the M20 line. And that episode will be going out around the time that Book of the Fallen is available to the public. So catch your feeds for that. We did do an interview for it. Uh, Satoros and Jacqueline sat down with us for in excess of two hours to discuss evil and its manifold forms. So That was 220 pages of evil, but I'm feeling much better now. Exactly. And I personally, to as, as kind of a palate cleanser after that, where I was like, well, I don't know if I want to go immediately to work after having read this. Um started reading Exalted 3rd Edition, and I was fine with everything up until I got to the character creation section, where instead of primary, secondary, and tertiary attributes being 753, they are 864. And I'm like, this game is absolutely broken. Everyone gets one extra dot in each thing. I will also be at PAX Unplugged in Philadelphia at the Philadelphia Convention Center the first weekend of December. That is Thursday the 5th through Sunday the 8th. I will be meeting up with a few Mage the Podcast, or at least Mage fans, or at least people who are interested in running into me there. Uh, and if you'd like to, hit me up on the Discord. We've had some very hopping discussions recently, my favorite being one that started out with, let's talk about Isle of the Mighty for Changeling and Mage, which quickly turned into, how the heck do the mists work? So uh, we've had some lively chats there. So if you're going to PAX Unplugged and you would like to say hi, Give me a holler there. Shoot us an email. Find me on Twitter at Terry Robinson. I'd love to run into you. Item number three, you have that storyteller screen, which pleases me, as well as the Angel of Mercy adventure. I am running out of mage stuff that I don't have, and I think I'm down to the mug, the Zippo, the ether goggles, and some of the tattoos. I was super jazzed that I found someone with a sheet of the hollow one lick and stick temporary tattoos. So if Ooh, we, that that's legit, man. Oh yeah. That's if we legit. ever do like a giant mage, the podcast mage LARP, you'll be able to identify me by, I will just be covered in tradition, symbol temporary tattoos. I wouldn't actually apply them because then they would no longer be new in box. I would just kind of adhere the packages to me, possibly with some sort of removable tape. If anyone has ever actually seen the mage, the Ascension ether goggles in real life and can determine whether or not they actually exist or it's just a giant prank played by the past on me. I would super appreciate knowing once again, made the podcast at gmail.com or tell me over discord. Those are my announcements. <laughs> All right. The uh, void engineers, just a little, little bit of groundwork for everyone are the, some would say the little brother convention in the technocracy. And what I mean by that is uh, they seem to be the group that is the least influential when the technocrats get together. They're the most, um, uh, positive, uh, open to new ideas, more liable to be friendly to groups outside of the technocracy, and usually considered to be 
further from uh, being a leader or a mover and a shaker within the technocracy. One of the threads for uh, Metaplot in the very beginning of Mage back in 1993 was the notion that the void engineers may be open to the idea of leaving the technocracy. They may be less happy with, with what's happening there, the rigid rules, the guidelines, the direction that the technocracy is going in. They're most famous for being involved with outer space. Uh, it's sort of like NASA for Mage, I guess, if you run a, a great oversimplification. But there are a lot more things happening within the Void Engineers. We're going to get into those. But first, we have probably had uh, quite a few episodes since we have had a proper look at uh, the sections and the walkthrough of the book. Uh, I noticed that with this book, it was a, a very simple arrangement. There are four chapters, uh, no introduction, no prelude, no appendix, just your four chapters. And I am probably not the only person who would love to hear Terry walk us through it. Yeah. Uh, speaking of like first considerations, one, it's the only technocracy book that has someone who anatomically appears to be female on it. It is a nice lady in a yellow dress, probably in space, which seems like it would be very unhealthy. And that is a welcome relief to all the other manuals that just show very severe men seemingly about to punch you. And I appreciate that departure. The other thing about this is the information we have about the Void Engineers so far in first edition, I am only slightly exaggerating when I describe that in the 1E core rulebook, the Void Engineers are described as uh, fey-infected space obsessives that want to destroy space. Like, there's a thing where they're like, we want to render space dull and lifeless. And you're like, wait, you want to kill space? <laughs> yes. And you're like, hey, that's first edition. <laughs> you, you have fun with that. The Void Engineers are also responsible for like the game Changeling existing, which I think is kind of cool. That like in 1993, we get the canon that's like, oh yeah, their quest to the moon opened the gates of Arcadia. Oops. And the technocracy has been regretting that ever since. And that was part of the tension that Adam mentioned of, are the VEs going to peace? And I just picture the Void Engineers at a symposia where everyone's like, uh, so what do you have to say to yourself, Void Engineer? And he's like, obviously sitting there in a spacesuit with all his spacesuit friends. And they're like, screw you, I'm going to space. <laughs> or, or something equally reductive. But section-wise, yeah, it's super straightforward. And uh, the first thing we get, like after the opening credits, is this glorious two-page splash by Leaf Effing Jones. This book, I think this book was a back formation where like Leaf Jones just submitted 30 pictures of people in space with very large guns shooting things that looked weird. And they're like, wait, we can work with this. And the Void Engineers were born. Like prior to that, there were only four conventions and then Leaf Jones came in. The first one is chapter one, Illuminating Dark Corners, where our lead character is referred to as Spandex. The framing narrative of this is the start of like a bad joke where it's like two mages, a vampire, and a changeling walk into a bar. But instead, it is a void engineer, a dream speaker, a very old vampire, and some sort of changeling, maybe like a pisky or a selkie. Someone will correct me, and for that, I love our audience. And they're just talking about like the mythic age, and we get some doozies in terms of one-liners, of which I think my favorite is the fact that one of the characters... Early on yells, there's only thing, one thing I love more than chocolate, and that's men. And it goes through the history. And just like everyone wants to have always existed, the Void Engineers are like, we're really the oldest. Because the first time someone looked at their village and said, peace out, I'm going over the next hill. The first Void Engineer was born. But really, they claim that their origins go back to one exploration but exploration in terms of securing survival. The wider our tribe can spread, the more access to resources we have, and the more areas we have mapped, the less the unknown can sneak up and like eat us while we are sleeping. So that's a very technocracy twist on, ah, they're just curious just like the rest of it. Yeah, they're curious because they don't want to die. Then it goes into the dawn of the Age of Reason. And the Void Engineers are interesting because they are a combination of two other conventions. One, the Seekers of the Void, and two, the Celestial Masters. The Celestial Masters being the, we're going to stare at the heavens and get 19 dots in entropy because of it. They follow through the Age of the Celestial Masters and how the Age of Exploration came out of that with this amazing line where it's like the technocracy realized if we couldn't protect the whole planet, we couldn't protect anything. So the technocracy is more or less like, okay, guys, get out there. No more unknown things that are allowed to eat us from the shadows. 
Next thing we get is the introduction of one of the coolest characters to exist in Mage, Tychoides. There is this void engineer who has spent a lot of time mapping the world, going through the near universe and so on, and was a legendary uh, accomplice of Lewis and Clark or Mason and Dixon or something like that. And, and this character is nearing the end of their lives, and they're like, time for me to explore the greatest realm of all, death. And then he's like, JK, I want to live forever. Progenitors get on this. And they did. And Tychoides is still alive three centuries later. Then we get a overview of the industrial age where the technocracy was in space in the 20s, learned about the Nefandis in space in the 40s, and left the solar system in the 50s. Uh, this is one of my third favorite history facts, and I'm going to jump the gun a little. And this, this book finally answers the long lost question of how did Kepler and Einstein get wrapped up in the mage? And the answer is they are technocrats. Also, so was Isaac Newton, who was killed by the Euthanatos in a drive-by in the 1920s. God, I love second edition sometimes. <laughs> uh, do you have any comments before I go on to section two? The framing narrative of the very mixed group of uh, World of Darkness Supernaturals was, was, was kind of fun for me because at the time the book came out, I also knew a number of people who were playing uh, very mixed uh, crossover World of Darkness games. And so I, I just got the impression that the authors probably knew people who were doing this and, and didn't even feel like they were doing something odd or a little, yeah. a little out there. It's like, oh, everybody does this. We can do this and people <laughs> are going to get this. And it's like looking back at it years later, it's like it's kind of funny. But on the other hand, it's like, yeah. A lot of people really did play this way. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, it had this, like, Brady Bunch vibe to it where it's like, here's a story of four <laughs> awkward night folk who are stranded in some terrible astral realm. <laughs> so as for the first chapter, uh, uh, yeah, I think you summed it up very well. I, I think it is uh, it's very it's very playful on the part of the authors to take so many famous uh, astronomers and and physicists and scientists and so on and to just drop them into mage and say hey you know what after they did what was so famous in the sleeper world they stepped back and did amazing things in the shadows and yeah you know isaac newton got killed street thug euthanatos in the 1920s i mean that was just that kind of hit me like right out of left field it's like wait what did i just I? like the idea yeah, of the, I read that. <laughs> it feels like you can nonchalantly say oh yeah isaac newton was killed by bootleggers moving on <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was a lot of fun but on to chapter two Chapter two, entitled A Society of Strangers, we start going from the places they've been historically to the places they've been in space. And we are introduced to the COP, the Copernicus Research Center, a deep rumble construct inside of a giant Dyson sphere built around a star staffed by researchers, trainers, and explorers. And the interesting thing is... No one knew where it came from. When they found it, it was abandoned, and it's a Dyson Sphere. So a Dyson Sphere is a large artificial construct that is built at roughly 1 AU from a star, assuming it's a sun-sized star. So you find the habitable zone of a star, the area where life as we know it seems to be okay to, to be. And instead of putting a planet there, you fill that entire shell with something that you've constructed. The Next Generation Star Trek episode, Relics, which mark the return of James Doohan as Scotty to Star Trek continuity is a notable case of that popping up. The other thing that's interesting about a Dyson sphere is they're gravitationally unstable and there's no way to prevent the star from just like smashing into the side, but we don't need to worry about this. We're the technocracy. Um, yeah. The Dyson sphere is a very cool idea. Uh, I read that uh, one of the basic uh, principles of it is to be able to set up uh, something a lot like uh, solar cells and be able to collect, uh, harness, and use almost 100% of the energy output of a star. And that will fuel some serious civilization. So a proper Dyson sphere around a, a star the size of our sun would have the surface area about 550 million times larger than the Earth. So needless to say, the technocracy does not fill a lot of the space. And we get some basic details on the Copernicus Research Station and what happens there and the facilities they offer. And then it dives into the teams. These are the groups that uh, that do stuff. It goes through a bunch of, of terminology. Um, the, the basic methodologies we have are research and execution because development is for wusses. We need something that involves more 
shooting space thing. So we're going to call it execution. But yeah, these are the group that comes up with new devices. And the interesting thing about them, unlike, say, Q Division in the Syndicate, they are field testing. So they give you a new plasma rifle. They are right next to you, also using that plasma rifle, which seems Awfully dangerous, but I, I appreciate the moral support that they grant. The next group that we get are the Earth Frontier Division, which covers a lot of stuff. There is a group that covers the Arctic. There is a group that covers the deep ocean. Uh, there is a group that covers mountains and the tropical areas. You name a place that is uncomfortable to be in while wearing khaki pants and flip-flops, and there is a group of Void Engineers dedicated towards just being there, which is useful. I just like the fact that there's a group of Void Engineers who are like super good at gearing up and dealing with Yeti infestations. And then we go on to the Pandimensional Core, and when you think Void Engineer, this is kind of who you think of. You have a group that operates deep universe sentinel posts that make sure Cthulhu don't get through, and when it does, there's a lot of satellites that shoot lasers out it. They talk about having discovered Octochthonia, the planet that orbits the Earth opposite of Earth that no one's quite sure where that came from. They talk about how they've sent things as far as the uh, Pleiades star cluster, which is about 400 light years from Earth, about the space marines, and all sorts of interesting things that they, they have shoved out into space. The last of those groups that kind of kind of go weird places are the Cybernauts and the Chrononauts. The Cybernauts going to the digital web and the Chrononauts going through time. The trick there is there aren't any chrononauts because every time they try and send something backwards in time, it kind of explodes. So they've got they've got a little more work to do on that. And then that kind of rounds out the last set of groups. We have the Border Corps Division that more or less keep things out or that find things that have gotten in and reduce them to very small pieces using the aforementioned obscenely large guns. Finally, we have the Neutralization Specialist Corps that kind of works closely with the NWO and mostly deals with UFO sightings and ghosts. The last thing we have is the leadership group, which is uh, Deceitsi, the Dimensional Science Evaluation Administration and Training Committee, who has been led by Tychoides since Tychoides went all Tychoides. And the interesting thing about that is we now have at least two groups that are led by something weird. You have this 300-year-old explorer immortal scientist that seemingly single-handedly leads the Void Engineers, and you also have the computer, which is leading Iteration X. I think it would be super cool if it turned out that like every convention was led by something that wasn't the Inner Circle, that everyone just looked at everyone else and goes, oh yeah, we're totally listening to you, Inner Circle, but like secretly there's some crazy umbral entity or whatever that secretly leads each of them. And rounding out that section, we get information on their stereotypes that they see regarding the other conventions, as well as the traditions and so on, and that marks the end of section two. For me, uh, Chapter 2 had a, a couple of things that I just could, could not help but notice. Uh, there's a shout-out on page 23 to Rage Across the Amazon. They they don't name it specifically, but they are definitely referring to it. Also, the Dark Side Moon Base is listed, and we're going to hear about that again in the uh, Umbra book that's coming up. But... Um, it's mentioned as a, a very busy, important, happening place, lots of activity, lots of people traveling in and out doing very important things. So it'll be interesting to see uh, when that gets mentioned again and, and catch up with that location. It mentions that the Void Engineers work with Iteration X to continue to explore. I don't know if it's Autochthonia or Autochthonia, but that idea kind of seized my attention because I had this impression in the back of my mind, I guess you could say, that Autochthonia was this realm that Iteration X had totally mastered. It was a sort of a super headquarters and it knew what was going on there and uh, it was a, a comfortable seat of power for them. But this suggests that it is an immense realm that isn't even fully explored. And so there are, is a presence there of Void Engineers and Iteration X and they're not only running their own show there, but they're actually like wandering out into larger vistas and corridors and just trying to explore and find out what's what's here. And uh, how big is this place really? And uh, for people who want to explore that, I, th I think that could uh, uh, lend a lot of uh, cool ideas. And who cannot resist seeing the Ghostbusters mention for the Neutralization Specialist Corps? It says that they have special technomagical equipment that they use to handle uh, spirits. You know, for some people, it's going to be a little bit silly. And OK, I understand that. But for a lot of people, they're going to say, wait. 
I can do Ghostbusters in Mage. Oh yeah, you oh get they get I'm ghost honest. guns. And I, I feel like we could do a rewrite of Void Engineers where it's like, okay, we got the ghost guns, we got the space guns, we got the border guns, we got the Amazon guns, we got the ocean guns. And then we got the gun builders. On your character sheet, you will notice your 10th sphere is the sphere of gun. To answer your previous thing, it is autochthonia. Autochthonous uh, refers to a whole bunch of different things, but it goes back to the Greek and it just means self-earth. And it describes either when referring to people, indigenous people, it also refers to anything that was formed in place. Like an autochthonous rock formation means that the rock formation formed where it is currently and hasn't moved. And it kind of refers to a lot of things that are generally old and haven't moved. So to refer to it as autochthonia kind of implies that it was, it was always there. Uh, eventually in Exalted, we get autochthon as well as a, as a region, which is kind of interesting. But yeah, it's a, it's a nice mouth-filling word. And, uh, <laughs> I feel better actually hearing that because I had always pronounced it autochthonia, but then I started you know, thinking, is this some mention to the Cthulhu's mythos? Maybe it should, it's another nope. way, but it sounds like I actually, it's one of the few words I had right. So going forward, we have stage two, Icarus wings. And put on your space belt and put your space guns in their space holsters because we got like 30 pages of things you can shoot. Starting this section, this is this is one of the few items on my shit list. They use the term apparati. The plural of apparatus is apparatus or alternatively apparatuses. Apparati isn't a word, so take that. And it does the standard thing where it just gives you a list of focuses and it doesn't really tell you how they are used. Like you just hold up a scanner and that allows you to to blow up a table with entropy or something like that. Still, we, we haven't quite figured out how technocratic focuses work yet, and I understand that. But getting past that, we start learning some of the basic uh, things that the Void Engineers do and the rotes and effects that they have to back that. It walks through the standard spheres, and we get the first mention, really, of the technocratic alternative to spirit, which is dimensional science. It creates an interesting thing where this is kind of the first implied deviation where with dimensional science, as opposed to stepping sideways, what you can also do is just kind of lower the gauntlet in an area until you can just kind of walk over to it. And then you raise the gauntlet on the other side and it structurally gets you to the same place, but that's kind of their justification of, Hey, we can do this without causing a huge amount of paradox to erupt. And we get some pretty impressive high dot effects as you would expect. And we also kind of get the first reference that with mind five, you can destroy a patient's memory of their avatar. So you can mine someone so hard. They forget that they're a mage. The next thing we get is a list of items and boy, howdy, do they have a lot. And rather than list them all, I'm going to do a call out to probably one or two of my favorites. One, Ionic Cloth, which is a device that we get like 17 times in a mage cannon, which is uh, what the Void Engineer suits are made out of. They repel stains and dirt and add one dice to soak rolls and also apparently are very easy to clean, which I appreciate. We get a huge amount of abbreviations. We get APCs, we get BFGs, we get RMUs, and we get QFIs. And if you're curious what these things are, please go to DriveThruRPG, use our affiliate code, spend six bucks, get this. And that that is largely the rest of the book until we get to the Anastasia. Was there any equipment or any devices that struck out to you and you were like, man, I want one of these. Well, I was uh, a little unhappy about uh, reading the uh, description of the, the large uh, energy guns, which come in two different sizes, called AFCs, and I, I don't didn't memorize what that stands for. Accelerated but, Force Cannon. Oh, that's got to be it. It doesn't give damage for it. It gives a lot of other specific information for it, but I don't remember seeing the damage for it. They have spacecraft in here, which I thought was, was really great, but uh, they didn't have stats for the spacecraft, and... I know I, I, I've kind of gone down on the record as always saying I'm a rules light guy, but this was a little too rules light for me. I, it would have been nice to have something about like how much damage can it take, how fast can it go, how many people, you know. So some of them I guess say how many people they can hold, but still it would have been nice to have 
a little bit more statistics on that. I don't think it would have been that difficult. Uh, also, they have the LERMU, the L-E-R-M-U, which mm-hmm. stands for something very uh, scientific sounding. But it's basically yet another mention in a mage book of the gray men, the, the short gray men with large eyes who are the stereotypical alien that uh, land in the middle of nowhere and capture people and do uh, very embarrassing experiments on them that they can only halfway remember years later. This was one of those running jokes with the mage authors. There are several mage books where they give a different origin, a different explanation for those little gray guys who come down out of space with really huge eyes. So yet another mention to them here. Which is interesting because we don't get the Kalawan until relatively far into the game, I think. Like we don't formally get them. We got the, we got the Ziggurakalar um, already. <laughs> but but yeah, the Lermus, the Living Entity Reality Modulator Unit, where they're like, yes, these are assistants designed by the progenitors. But within the text, they're also like, maybe they're umbral spirits. Let's, uh, <laughs> we're going to let you roll your own. And I felt the same way about some of the things where it's like, this is the difficulty. Okay, how many dice of damage do I do? Because rules light is great if you already know the rules. But like just some information of like, this is what a space dragon requires to kill, or this is what like an airplane is. Just so you kind of have like a rough level of comparison. That way yeah. you're not sure, like, is it the Enterprise versus the Borg Cube, or is it an Enterprise versus a slightly different version of the Enterprise because of time stuff? So just just something to get within like an order of magnitude is super useful, and I, I agree with that. There, there were just so many devices. <laughs> and it just kind of goes on for a while. It does bring up that one of the big things that the Void engineers do is they sanitize nodes. Up until now, seemingly every convention has a slightly different way of harvesting quintessence. And the kooky way in which the Void engineers do is, one, they make a sideways glance to, ah, sometimes we kill thing in, things in space, and it turns out their bodies can be used as batteries. Cool. And the other way is they take these massive devices, the Quila machine. I wasn't entirely sure how to pronounce that one. Uh, Quila sh- Makane? Yeah. Something like that. They shift them to the other side of the Umbra, and they uh, suck up node power from the penumbra, or at least from the other side of the gauntlet, which I think is uh, is pretty savvy. So the Anastasia is a Quila machine and is a umbral, umbral sanitation craft, which is this massive insectine uh, thing that has been in service for 60 years, And we get a mention of the Void Engineers calling it the Ascension Conflict, which is a super polite way of referring to the Ascension War. That's like two gangs having a shootout in a parking lot with like bodies everywhere. And the police refer to it as a disagreement. But it does a callback to the Book of Chantries that we have the Yenosia Horizon construct on Null B, where Null B, I think, is a reference to a 60s sci-fi movie about Null A. Or at least, I think when we talked about Null B, uh, when that popped up, that that's where that, that John came from. Oh, that makes sense now. Yeah, I, I, that was a trilogy of books, and uh, um, was that A.E. Van Vogt who wrote those? Yeah, the, the first one was pretty good, and second one was, was good, and third one, not so good. Yeah. <laughs> You nicely summarized most of science fiction. <laughs> First one was pretty good. The second one was readable. The third one, uh, it's currently being used as a doorstop. So yeah. Was that during the age where everyone just used their initials or was this a case where someone used their initials because there was a lady and no one trusted lady science fiction? A.E. Van Vogt started his career, I believe, in 1939. He was in the pulps, but he was in sort of the later part of the pulps. And yes, it was common for a lot of people uh, in those days to use just two letters and then a last name. There was A. Merritt, there was H.P. Lovecraft, and a number of others. Huh. Well, thank you. We then get to go through the crew, and this this is a group of people who are battle-hardened and, and nearly to their breaking point. And the interesting thing here is some of the most important characters are not very powerful in terms of magical abilities. So you have the captain of the ship, Captain Carrie Bissett, who only has an arete of three. Up until now, it would be one of those things, like, especially if it were first edition, be like, this is the first crewman, this is their first assignment, they have an Arite of 14, and the captain has an Arite of 25, or something like that, and it's like, <laughs> no, 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 this is space, teamwork is our real weapon, 
it's just impressive in terms of it is a relatively low magic in terms of traditional sphere use, although many of the characters have access to, to potent devices. It goes over the unenlightened contingent that there are sleepers aboard this vessel, and it also goes over the history and the layout of the ship that kind of presents it as this giant 80-foot-long metallic insect bristling with barbs and guns and antenna, and there are blast doors, and it's one of those things where you're like, this is 85 feet long and there's five people on it. This seems like an awfully spacious spaceship. It goes over the various devices that it has attached to it. Uh, it gives uh, a reference to like the contents of the armory and some of the weapons that you could have, as well as what it does, and that it is part of a trio of vehicles that kind of rotate across the wastelands of Yonosia on one-week tours and just make sure nothing kooky is happening. And what this kind of does is cement the fact that when you get into deep space, one of the big enemies you have are the Nefandi. This is before we've really gotten an update that suggests that the Nefandi are everywhere, or spend a lot of time on Earthbound, but like it still kind of suggests that the real base of power for the Nefandi and, and for some marauders as well is, is really far out there. So the idea that the, one of the most common things this void ship is going to have to do is shoot down giant star squids. I think is kind of badass and is not quite unique to Mage, but it's one of the interesting combinations that I super like. One of the things that a tradition book or convention book is uh, expected to do is to open up this group uh, to show you a lot of possibilities, not only to detail the possibilities that everyone comes into this expecting, which in this case is void engineers. Yeah, they build spaceships and go into the deep umbra and do amazing things, kind of like Star Trek, but kind of not like Star Trek. And it uh, certainly does give us that material, but it also opens the group up to say that uh, they are also active in a lot of other areas that you may not have expected. They are they're very active on Earth. They are in the Arctic, Antarctic. They are at the bottom of the ocean. They are climbing up mountains. They are deep underground, uh, burrowing through miles and miles of rock to discover whatever it is people discover down there. They're also hunting down spirits. They're helping people recover from encountering Nefandi and uh, marauders. Uh, just just a, a lot of things open up for them. And, and that was fun for me to see. Uh, this book, I would say, was... Actually, Terry and I were chatting about this before, and, and uh, I heard Solid B, which uh, I would have to agree with. <laughs> yeah, that it, was my it rating. It's a good book. It does its job. It gives us some good material. It did not dazzle me with its brilliance. It, it, it's not like... Uh, the first Sons of Ether tradition book where you're just, oh my gosh, this is amazing. But it was a good, solid entry in the series. If asked if I would recommend it, I would say, if you're going to use the Void Engineers, yeah, I think there's something here for you. I think this is a really solid book, and I was glad to get it. The idea that they were following here was in keeping with earlier themes of the technocracy. They give each group a very uh, scientific, official, somewhat boring name which I guess is appropriate. Things like Research and Execution, Earth Frontier Division, Pan-Dimensional Core, Border Core Division, Neutralization, Specialist Core, things like that. The names make sense, and it, it really makes sense to me that the technocracy would use names like this. And then the uh, abbreviations, like the three- or four-letter abbreviation for these uh, groups are thrown around so frequently in the book. I, I found myself constantly turning to the last page, uh, 69, where they have the lexicon so I could like decipher the alphabet soup. And it fits. It makes sense. It, it it's, doesn't inspire me or excite me, but it really does fit. I work for a small software company that was recently gobbled up by a large government contractor. And so now I work with a whole bunch of uh, you know former federal government types and current federal government types. And yeah, the, the dull, long names and the alphabet soup, the three-letter, four-letter abbreviations get thrown around so casually that, uh, you know, five minutes into my meetings now, I, I'm, I'm starting to wonder, who are we talking about? What is that thing again? What is an ABC? <laughs> That's how they operate. So it, it fits. But um, I guess if it left me a little bit disappointed because there are some mage books I read where I get this really cool name for a group or some really cool ideas. Like, wow, just hearing that name makes me want to – uh, read up about them or do something with them. I liked the big joke. And the big joke is the idea that they kind of all have these uniform jumpsuits with like a single stripe on them. And whenever they interface with another convention, that's how they are dressed. But it is actually just a thing that the clothing can do to look identical to everyone else's. When they're not with other technocrats, they dress much more normally. So they kind of look like this uniformed fleet of space dorks. It makes the group more 
personable, more approachable, I guess, for, for the mage fans reading the books. It's like these are the guys who don't take themselves too seriously. In fact, they also look at the other technocrats and they, they kind of wonder, are, are they, should we really take these guys seriously? Are we really in a, a room full of stuffed suits and do we really belong here? And, and kind of the dark side of that is you talked about, are they going to stay or are they going to go? They make mention to the fact that they have advanced mind procedures to undo the conditioning that some of their members receive if they deal with the NWO or have to go in for disciplinary action that once this person is back, they go through these mind procedures to kind of undo what has been done to them. And that is a profoundly subversive act that if like the NWO were to find out about, it seems like they would have, have words to say to them. They're aware of what they're in, and they're they're not signing their souls away 100%. And in terms of size, though, it's kind of weird, because in my head, the, the Void Engineers were kind of small or something, because they're just this small group patrolling deep space. But like the fact that they are small comes from the fact that there's relatively few of them seemingly on Earth. Like The book lists the fact that they have well over 100 Void Engines, that they have... 20 of these large Quila machine and five Vaders, which are the even larger ones where you work backwards and you're like, okay, well, if they have a crew of this, then this, then this, and this is one of several groups that they have, there's a lot of void engineers running around. Now, mind you, they're not all awakened. It, it is kind of interesting to be like, oh, wow, they do have enough people to seemingly protect most of reality. It also gives us initial rules to suggest that sleepers can use devices up to a certain level and that sleepers using a talisman can actually incur paradox, which I thought was kind of interesting. That was one of the things. That yeah, they that stood out to me, too, for a sleeper to incur paradox. I think that may be the first place I've come across that since the beginning of the, the published mage books. And as a storyteller, I'm, I'm not sure how I would handle that. I'd have to give that a little thought, but I wouldn't just uh, run that one as is. I, I do like the idea that like, uh, yeah, um, I used that big gun over there because there was a weird space thing attaching us. And now I have six fingers on my left hand and four on my right. But as you said, it's it's a bunch of good stuff. If you if you want your characters to go to space, it's a great way to do it. Uh, realize that everything they have is super quintessence hungry. Like seemingly using everything requires a charge of uh, quintessence or some amount of task to activate. And which yeah. kind of makes sense because you're in space. And if you don't keep all your stuff working, you die. So I guess so. Yeah, but it did stand out. <laughs> This is the convention that drains batteries like nobody's business. Exactly. The art was exceptional. Oh, we got to talk about the art. We got to talk about the art. I mean, it's just in, in a lot of mage books, we sort of pass over because, yeah, this is sort of mage looking art. But this book, it, it slaps you in the face like a wet fish. I mean, give me your impression here. Uh, for me, I like the bit of paranoia and madness that sneaks into all the character photos. So they go through the display for all of the characters that they describe at the end. And it is this weird, high contrast, shadowy, slightly fish-eyed presentation where everyone looks a little bit crazy. And I super like that, especially the Colette Sheridan, the grandmotherly lady who is actually a crack pilot, but has like the greatest librarian old lady reading glasses of all time. So I just picture their like Quile machine being attacked by a star squid. And she's like, hold on, let me put down my crossword puzzle and I'll get us out of this mess in a jiff. And then just like crack pilot from there on out. From what I understand, space requires a lot of tubes and wires to survive. Also, space dragons. Lots of space dragons. Like, yeah, <laughs> I think for this book, they they said to Leaf Jones, it's like uh, Leaf Jones. Uh, yeah, we're gonna need some art here. In fact, we're, we're gonna need a lot of art here. Can you do it? And Leaf Jones said, "I am ready. Yeah, if you I, want some fishmen who have huge teeth and are ready to kill people and huge guns and uh, alienated, uh, frightened people wandering through." Large corridors full of tubes. In fact, made up of tubes. Made entirely out of tubes. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure the art director at White Wolf was saying, hey, this, this, this guy's the pro. But they did a crack job of propagating this book with tubes and large geometric fields. But if you need guns and things with strange mouths, this book is all over it. It's, it's, a, recurring, it's a recurring motif. You can tell this happens in zero or low gravity because people are, are holding out pistols that are larger than M60 full-size machine guns with one hand like at a casual angle. It's like uh, that that's not regular Earth gravity. I guess the, the one weird thing is it turns out that the person narrating 
is, spoiler alert for a 25-year-old book, turns out to be a Barabbas, or at least that is heavily implied when it's like, oh, my friends are picking me up, and then a cyborg appears, because when I think Nefandi, I think cyborg. (laughs) It just disappears. I'm like, that's an interesting plot twist. And they never actually answer where they are, and the dream speaker is able to go into the woods and pick up two rabbits, which is kind of cool. But yeah, that that also had me wondering. It's like we're in a strange little bubble realm in between cosmic places, and I'm just going to wander off and grab two rabbits. Okay, cool. And they also mentioned that uh, areas beyond the penumbra are believed to be poisonous, and they are poisonous because people think they're poisonous. So I, I always I always had a mixed relationship with that in Mage. I always picture like a technocrat. And maybe like a dream speaker talking to each other, like, how do you survive out there? Uh, I, I usually bring a, a canteen. Uh, and the other person has just got their, their, their giant space suit on. They're like, oh, okay. I prefer to think that they were actually in a large park the entire time. And all of them were just so adjusted to city life, except for the dream speaker, that they're like, how do we leave? <laughs> or something <laughs> like that. It just turns out they're in the middle well, of like, interpretation. Yeah. <laughs> Some of the things that stand out to me in this book, for a long time through the different editions of Mage, there is this idea that the Void Engineers and traveling so far out into the Deep Umbra and spending so much time away from civilization, Mage society, the technocracy, etc., that they are open to influences, and one of those negative influences may be the uh, Deep Umbral Nefandi. And so that is mentioned in here, the... Uh, I guess the the main character for the framing narrative is a a woman who's with the Void Engineers, and she uh, hints a couple of times through the story that uh, she's turned sour and she's open to the ideas of the Nefani. And then uh, the the two or three characters that mysteriously pick her up at the end, it's, of course, the question in a lot of Mage fans' mind is, oh, is this proof that the Nefandi have thoroughly infiltrated the Void Engineers? And the book doesn't make it clear on purpose. And I would say, no, this is not proof positive. It, It just... It plays with the idea. Um, a storyteller could say that, yeah, the, the whole convention has been compromised or there is a group within there or it could just be a one-off and, and not so much to worry about. That, that's something that a storyteller is free to work with in his or her own chronicle. Uh, also, I like the um, the continued uh, references to, I guess you could say, cosmic horse that kind of intrude into earlier editions of Mage more than in, in later editions. Uh, this idea that there are uh, very large, frightening alien sort of super monsters way out beyond the stars, and they may have some kind of interest in taking over Earth or squashing it. There are not a lot of role-playing games, in my experience at least, that let you really play with these uh, Lovecraftian cosmic horror ideas. Now, of course, there's Call of Cthulhu, which is all about that, but... This is a very different kind of interaction. In Call of Cthulhu, you have very mortal characters who really don't know much about the cosmic horror, and when they encounter it, they're not very well prepared to deal with it, and they usually have to flee. Now, in Mage the Ascension, we have these very knowledgeable, powerful mages who are better equipped to learn about the cosmic horror and stand against it. And so, as a longtime fantasy and science fiction fan, I, I like seeing this influence in early edition of mages but i admit it's not for everyone and i can certainly understand those who were uh, pleased when it uh, uh, moved more into the background in um, a revised edition and, and mage 20 i like that it does two big things one it gives you a concrete case kind of of the technocracy can deal with something that your traditions can't that this is something that the traditions are really in no way well equipped to deal with, where you can you can use whatever magic you want, but these guys have access to depleted uranium rounds. And that just kind of works better when something is trying to sluice in through the cracks of reality. Two, it allows you to introduce an existential threat. Like, it allows you to maintain reality as normal, but it is still a world of darkness because there is this giant abyssal horror that if we're not constantly vigilant and dealing with, bad things will happen. So it allows you to introduce bad things that aren't necessarily just ramped up versions of of human failings and allows you to have a supernatural protagonist that your characters are that to deal with that and you're right there doesn't seem to be a huge number of uh, games that that kind of deal with that but this is a game where you're kind of going toe to toe and you're not quite on the same level 
as Narithatep or whatever it is. But you're, you you can give him a, a, a run for your money, especially with a little bit of planning and if you bring some friends along. I got the impression after reading this that the Void Engineers are the convention of the technocracy that, that really feel uh, the direct pressure from the uh, threats to uh, threats to the world. And so they develop technology and, and techniques as fast as they can. And they are much less inclined to pay attention to not only sleeper culture and what's going on on Earth and in, in human society, but uh, also the technocracy's timetable and the technocracy's long-term plans. And so I like this because it, it helped me to see that it makes sense that this is the convention that is more likely to break away from the technocracy than the others. You have most of the conventions of the technocracy that are more involved with what's happening on Earth and they're thinking about their perfect future and how they're going to guide society or put it under their heel, uh, if you want to play it that way. But the void engineers are the ones who are basically, they're, they're at the back of the room looking out the door outside, and they're saying, look, for, for, forget all that stuff. There, there's a threat out there. I don't care about your timetable. I don't care about your perfect future. I'm going to do things now to fight this threat. And if that pisses off my allies, yeah, I, I just I just don't care. I'm going to go for it. Although the two oddities are, one, the fact that you're in space, so paradox is less of a concern. And I do like the fact that they have like little paradox alarms, like they have little wristwatches that are like, hey, buddy, maybe, uh, maybe don't go all vulgar right now. There are normies around. You don't want anyone's head to explode. The other thing that was kind of interesting is they're like, ah, they've been able to take star stuff and turn it into tasks. But in early first edition, they kind of suggest that the reason spirits all want to be around Earth is that's where the quintet is. Yes. So, eh, I mean, that's more or less me pointing that out to prove that I've actually read all the books. I really don't care. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's like, ah, Mr. Bricado, I noticed an inconsistency. Well, conceptually, uh, the Void Engineers are often billed as the guys who go out in space. But when you really give them a more careful look and, and look at the five conventions and their responsibilities and what they handle. A lot of people do notice a fair amount of overlap between Iteration X and the Void Engineers. Uh, both of them deal with computer programming, the digital web. They're both um, militant against threats. I guess Iteration X are more concerned with human sorts of threats than alien sorts of threats. But still, both of these are the conventions that pick up the weapons and say, it's time to fight and we're going to do it. I like to notice a, a larger view of the void engineers, and that is they are not just um, extra, uh, exploring at the bottom of the ocean and far out in space, but uh, they're also the convention that is concerned with physics, with mathematics, with astrophysics, with um, artificial intelligence and, and computer-related issues, even if they're not quite as into the actual electronics construction as Iteration X is. Um, I like to point people towards uh, Anders Mage page 2.0. There is a Void Engineers page where uh, Anders Sonberg himself, some years back, wrote about the mathemagicians, which he you know, invented as a subgroup within the Void Engineers, and also a, uh, a bio of Dr. Robert Hill, who is a Void Engineer mathematician. I, I thought those were both interesting reads and uh, nice things to consider. So I encourage people to take a look at that. If you, We'll put a link in the show notes, but if you head over to Anders Mage page 2.0, look for Factions, Technocracy, Void Engineers, and uh, that material is there for you to see. So I'd encourage you to take a look. You got any plot plans there, boss? You know, I, I did have a few adventure ideas here. Uh, number one, opposing the Void Engineers. Handling a problem on a remote Pacific island, the players discover a brilliant void engineer, a member of research and execution, washed up on shore. He fled a nearby aquatic exploration team's mobile construct when he uncovered truths about his convention's cover-up of an underwater node and its frightening residents. He suspects nephondic involvement in the node. As the players get up to speed on the situation, they must deal with void engineer scuba teams attempting to infiltrate the island. Luckily, a series of semi-submerged caves connect underneath the island to give the players some options. Eventually, the players will have to take the fight to the mobile construct to shut down the attempt to poison all aquatic life over a large stretch of seabed to aid whatever is planned at the node. Aquatic gear and appropriate roads will need to be found in a hurry. Number two, playing Void Engineers. The player characters are members of Pan-Dimensional Core or Border Core Division and are sent to Autochthonia to assist the Autochthonia Research Core, a group within Pan-Dimensional Core. After experiencing firsthand the wonders of the immense machine realm of Iteration X that orbits the sun directly opposite of planet Earth, the players learn of coded signals broadcast from far away that feed directly to the realm's authority, Iteration X's fearsome computer. The players find a way to steal a 
Aquila Machine, a, v, a Void Engineer spaceship, and head toward the source of the broadcasts. That sector of deep space is patrolled by a fierce etherite scientist and her ethership. The players learn the ethership will attack any intruder without talking thinking twice and can use this to their advantage. Are their survival skills and guile enough to meet the threat waiting for them in the empty reaches of deep space? This adventure will let the players use any techno-magic they like without any paradox. Finally, the epic option. Tychoides, elder master of the Void Engineers, is revealed to be an imposter. After the New World Order makes this discovery, chaos ensues as many long-held secrets of the Void Engineers come to light. The players are standing at the forefront of the convention's initial effort to reform. Leaders confide the details of a plan made years ago to cooperate with virtual adepts and Sons of Ether to hide their resources and personnel while they separate from the technocracy and consider their future. A conspiracy of Nefandi sympathizers within the Void Engineers is using this opportunity to wipe out the Voiders who don't stand with them. The players must help Void Engineer leaders escape to a secure construct in New Zealand while fending off technocrats and turncoat Voiders. Who can they trust during this time of chaos? Can they help their former convention survive with its most important data? intact that's interesting because in the book they mention that the sons of ether who are like but we like playing with toys and having a stable budget kind of just joined the void engineers and i think that was nice to have an answer to that question which we never get for the virtual adepts those are a few ideas i was kicking around this week uh, if they inspire you to have ideas of your own then i've done my job and with that i believe we are drawing near to the end of the episode was there anything more to contribute now, nah, it, it, the book is is littered with a bunch of little lines that are kind of interesting. One is that the horizon moves depending on how far human technology has reached, which is kind of cool. Um, and that, that pretty well goes through all the things that I had. Uh, the quote, many people who ask too many questions or supply too many answers end up burned alive in town squares, was interesting because it suggests that the technocrats also suffered during the Inquisition in some way, which I thought was interesting and I don't think we had seen before. Yeah. And that's literally the last point on my agenda. So I thought it was a solid book because it offered a lot of ideas, but I thought it did not really shine because a lot of those ideas were presented in a very... Uh, cursory manner uh, they were not presented in a way that makes them stand out to the reader and so the presentation was a bit lacking but still there's there's a lot of interesting factions groups equipment ideas here that could really uh, get uh, the creative juices flowing so with that uh, I just want to thank everyone for listening you can uh, contact us to let us know what you're thinking or what it is you're not liking about these episodes at mage the podcast at gmail.com please let us know your questions comments or feedback also, you can subscribe to Mage the Podcast on iTunes, Google, Google Play, and TuneIn app. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter, at Mage the Podcast. Uh, we also have our website, magethepodcast.com, where we will have uh, this episode for you to listen to, along with uh, show notes and links that you can follow to uh, get further into the discussion. We have a really uh, happening Discord, and uh, we'll put a link in the show notes for you. We'd love for you to come and uh, join in the conversations there and see what we're up to, and let us talk to you also. We have executive producer positions open if you would like to contribute to the podcast and uh, help us keep the lights on. We would greatly appreciate that. And in, when you become an executive producer, it's not just a title. Uh, you are actually uh, granted access into our Slack. Uh, you have the ear of our producer and, and all of the different hosts. And uh, you can uh, be encouraged to uh, take a more active role in, in what's happening here. So that is certainly an option worth exploring. Thank you, everyone, who has tuned in and made it this far and towards Ascension. And this is Terry. There's only one thing I love more than chocolate, and that's Men Robinson signing out. Bye. <laughs>